glad to be here with you tonight. Uh, my name is Kermit Summerall. I'm one of the pastors here at The Crossing. I do mainly small groups, so help people get into small groups, just like many of you are probably in, uh, in Veritas. But for older people, uh, 30 and up crowd, and so uh, that's who I'm trafficking with now. Um, a good friend of mine and I, my good friend named Ryan Wampler and I, helped to start Veritas uh, together back in the fall of 2006. I was just finishing up seminary, praying about where I would serve. I really wanted to work with college students. And my friend Ryan called me up and said, hey, the crossing's thinking about starting a new college ministry. What would you think about coming over and helping me start a college ministry out of the crossing at Mizzou? And I said, that sounds awesome because they were great friends of ours. Uh, This is my wife's hometown and it sounded like a home run. So uh, we helped to start Veritas back in 2006. It was just one of my greatest memories of starting it up. Uh, One of the most rewarding things I've ever done was being on staff with the Veritas and working with guys like Kyle and Austin for years. Um, I love your staff team. You have an awesome staff team. And uh, so it was just a privilege to be involved in that. So tonight, uh, we are continuing a sermon series called Not Good Enough. So these are stories of different people in the Bible who, when you look at the story of their life, It helps make sense of the story of our lives. And you've looked at several stories so far. Tonight, we're going to look at the story of Jacob. But just think with me for a second. Just that that phrase, not good enough. Have you ever felt like that? I'm sure you have. Ever felt like you'll never be good enough? That you'll never measure up? I'll be honest. There's a big part of me that has never felt good enough. I've always struggled to feel good enough about myself. Matter of fact, in some ways, I kind of felt like life shafted me from the very beginning. From the get-go, I would never be good enough, okay? Sometimes in serious ways, sometimes in more funny ways. I'll start with the funny ways. Okay, first of all, my name is Kermit. Nice to meet you. That is my name, Kermit. Uh, so my wife and I were watching a comedian the other day. This was awesome. This comedian's name was Kermit, and he was telling stories about what it's like to be Kermit, and I was like, gosh, somebody get it's me. Thank you. And he was talking about what is it like to be Kermit? He said, he's like, he comes home from the first day of school and his mom asked him like, Hey, Kermit, how was your first day of school? And he's like, mom, my name is Kermit. How do you think my first day of school went? <laughs> and then you think about, you want a girlfriend, right? I wanted a girlfriend, even, even young, right? Well, who wants the nickname that goes along with Kermit? No one wants to be Miss Piggy, right? That doesn't help you fit in well. So from the get-go in my life, I automatically felt weird, like I didn't fit in, like I wasn't good enough. Well, even today, I can hardly go and pay for something with a credit card with my name on it without them saying something like, is that your real name? Wow, that's a name right there. So anyway, it gets old. But anyway, that's part of my life growing up. But there's more weird stuff. I grew up with a very, very overprotective father, like super safety conscious, okay? So literally, I could not eat sugar at all growing up, at all. So imagine like you go somewhere, nope, I can't have ice cream. No, I can't have Coke. I'm at the birthday party. No, I can't eat this, can't eat that, whatever. My dad made me have a tall orange flag on the back of my bicycle my whole childhood because he wanted to make sure every car saw me coming. He was so safety conscious. Imagine how that would feel having an orange flag on your bike your whole life, right? And then to top it all off, there was that day where my dad, who is Kermit Summerall Jr., and I am the third and love to do things together like father and son with the same name do, I guess, said, hey, son, 
I've decided to get a perm. Let's go together to get a perm. And this was the result. <laughs> this is my first grade school picture with a perm. We call it the little orphan Annie Kerm, I mean, <laughs> the Kerm, little orphan Annie Perm, or the Kerm Perm, uh, because that picture has faded so much that it literally looks like red hair, little orphan Annie. But that was, the funny thing about that perm, that was, I don't know if any of you remember this at all, there's a show called Growing Pains. Does any of you remember the show Growing Pains from the 80s? Had this guy named Kirk Cameron, he was cool, he was kind of like the guy from Riverdale is today, he was in all the like teenage rom-coms and all that stuff. Anyway, so he had this tight head of curly hair, so when I got my perm it looked a little bit like that, but the bad thing for me was I have really heavy hair, so as it grew out it kind of got straight up top and kind of made this ring of curls around the edge. Not a great look for any age person. Um, so, and, and, and other things, like I got to high school, and I wasn't always this skinny. Actually, I used to be a lot skinnier. <laughs> when I graduated from high school, I weighed a buck 38, and I was going into college. Um, academically, I was kind of a nerd, um, and extracurricularly, if that's a word, I was in band and choir, so you know what that made me? That made me the band geek, all that stuff. So all that to say, I kind of had a hard time feeling good about myself, Right? I had a hard time feeling like just okay with who I was. And because I didn't feel good enough, I was always sort of grasping for something, always sort of trying to find something that was going to make me feel good about myself. And so I tried in just the typical ways. I mean, I tried grasping for good enough by fitting in, you know, just going along with the crowd, doing whatever the crowd does, talking the way the crowd does, getting, you know, trying to have girlfriends, whatever it took to make me feel good about myself to fit in. Um, but it never, didn't work. I was never a part of a popular crowd. Um, later, I tried being good enough by accomplishments, you know, by resume building, by just being busy, uh, accomplishments in high school, stuff like that. But that didn't work either. Like, I remember actually... So my senior year, or right before my senior year of high school, I decided I'm going to run for school president. And I actually won. And it really shocked me. And all of a sudden, I felt good about myself, right? And then I go to my college, which is Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. I get down there, and literally, it seems like every person I met was like their senior class president or their school president. Like, I'm nobody special, right? So I didn't feel good about myself there. I even used church, and God to grasp onto a sense of good enough. In the sense that and when I was in high school, I kind of tried to be like the best Christian. I kind of tried to know the most or be the most faithful or be at the most stuff and be known for that. And that'd be a way that I could be good enough. Well, I was always grasping, but never felt good enough. But I think that's all of us, right? I think we've all felt that way. I mean, maybe it's your personality. Maybe it's your looks, something about your family maybe that's embarrassing. Maybe you're not as athletic. Maybe it's the way your friends treated you. Maybe it was you felt like you had a lack of friends. Whatever it was, there are things that made you feel not good enough. And maybe it was things like a learning disability. Or maybe you were quiet. Or maybe you went through an awkward phase. We all have, right? Maybe your family struggled financially, and so you always felt like you never had enough. Or maybe there was even more serious things. I mean, things that scarred you. Some of these things happened to me too. Like I went through a divorce of my parents. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you've gone through death in your family. Maybe you've gone through being, being the in-between child 
of parents who were separated. Or maybe one of your parents had favorites and it wasn't you. So there's lots of ways that we can grow up not feeling good enough. And, and what happens is, my guess is that it left you grasping, right? It left you grasping to feel somehow good enough. So if you grow up feeling different and, and, and not feeling like you fit in, what do you grasp for? Well, you probably grasp for acceptance, right? If you grow up poor without money, you're probably grasping for money. If you grow up without love, you're probably grasping for love. If you grow up without, with a life that feels out of control, you'll probably grasp for control. If you grow up without feeling respected, you'll probably grasp for respect. And through hard work, whatever it looks like. But if you grow up without approval, you'll probably grasp for approval. You'll probably be a people pleaser. But here's the thing. In all that grasping, have you ever really gotten to hold on to the thing you were grasping? Have you ever gotten it? I haven't. I've never been able to hold on to that feeling of good enough through any of those things. And I bet you haven't either because it's just a life of endless grasping. So tonight we're going to look at another person in the Bible, Jacob, like we said. And what we're going to see is that we'll never get to the point where we feel good enough by grasping onto other things. We'll never get to the point where we feel good enough until we grasp onto God. Here's the point of tonight. You'll never feel good enough about yourself until you grasp onto God. You'll never grasp onto good enough until you grasp onto God. So out of all the characters of the Bible, I think Jacob can relate to what we're talking about. Okay, out of all the characters of the Bible, I think Jacob's story is one of the best ones for making sense of our stories. Matter of fact, I think what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look through several episodes of his life, a few from his kind of uh, birth, early childhood, uh, and then early adulthood, but then the climax, the climactic episode of his life. And I think what you're going to be able to see is you're going to be able to see your own life in these episodes of Jacob's life. It's been really good and helpful for me to think through it that way. So Jacob, here's a little bit about Jacob. Jacob was Abraham's grandson, Isaac's son, okay? So he lived around the year 2000 BC. So way back, right? 4,000-ish years ago. His story's in the middle of Genesis. He grew up in a little town called Beersheba, which is in the southern part of present-day Israel. Uh, I told you I'm a nerd. I'm gonna use a little laser pointer here for a second. Oh man, you can't see this. Never mind. But it's down here. So this is present-day Israel, and you can't see the pointer either. So just where that little lake is down there, kind of toward the bottom right, this is present-day Israel, kind of just off to the, um, to the west of that, Beersheba, okay? And, um, but his life was never good enough. His life was an end, endless grasping for good enough. And, and yet, Jacob somehow became this, this guy that his 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel, and somehow the name Israel that we use even today for this country comes from this guy, from Jacob. So we'll look at a few of these episodes. So let's start by looking how a life of grasping for good enough gets started. Okay, so Jacob's childhood, he's born grasping. All right, so his story starts in a very unusual way. So something really strange happens. His mom, Rebecca, is pregnant. And when she's pregnant, she experiences this unusual thing, this weird sort of jostling in her womb. I know that sounds strange, but anyway, it's as if there's some kind of struggle, some sort of turmoil going on, okay? And then we see what happens. We'll pick up in uh, Genesis 25, verse 24. It says, when the time came for her to give birth, 
There were twin boys in her womb. The first to come out was red, and his whole body was like a hairy garment. Poor kid. So they named him Esau. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. So twins. So the first, first came a baby that's this very red and hairy baby, okay? And they named him Esau, which in the Hebrew literally means ugly baby. Uh, no, it means red. I'm kidding. Come on. That was kind of funny. Give me a little bit of credit. Um, so then out comes this next baby, and he was born literally grasping onto the heel of the first one. And so they name him Jacob, which means grasp the heel. Okay, so, so go with me here. So in that day and age, giving a name was really important. So it's kind of like the name you gave almost told something about the destiny or the future of this person. Or of course, like most parents do, sometimes it was just giving like a, a hope or a blessing to this child. Or sometimes if there were strange events or particular circumstances that were kind of unusual at the birth, maybe they would pick something like that to give them the name. So you can tell that's what his parents went with. So they named him Jacob, which means grasping the heel. But somehow, and I don't know exactly how this happened, somehow they didn't realize or they forgot that grasping the heel was a figurative way of saying that someone was a liar. So literally, it's like his name was Liar. They named their child Liar, Deceiver. And I thought I had a bad name. So it would be like, it'd be kind of like your parents. You're born, you're crying like crazy, and they name you Crybaby. Because that's what happened at your birth. But they don't realize what that's going to set you up for the rest of your life if your name's Crybaby. But that's what they did. They named him Liar. And so, just think about that for a second, though. Think about the damage of having a name like that. Your name means liar. So if you've ever felt shafted kind of by life or set up from the get-go to not be good enough, Jacob can relate. He can relate to that. And we wonder, how will this name play out? What will happen in the future? But think about this too. Jacob was literally born grasping. Can you relate to that? I think we all can. Isn't it true that even as children, it was just like we couldn't have enough. We had to feel good about ourselves. And usually it had to do with, I I have to have more than my brother or sister, more toys, better toys, be better than them at something. And we compare ourselves constantly, right? Why? Why? because we're born grasping. It's literally the state of our hearts, of our sinful hearts when we're born, that we are born grasping, trying to feel good enough. We are born into that condition. But why specifically for Jacob? Well, he was grasping because he wanted to be the firstborn. Why? Because being the firstborn was a big deal. There was a status and an identity to being firstborn. The firstborn son was the one who got the the lion's share of the inheritance. So he came out wanting that but yet was behind. He didn't have it. So being a firstborn was a big deal. But isn't that, again, all of us? We are all born grasping. So, but it wasn't just his name that he felt shafted. Look at the description of his early life. It says, the boys grew up and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah love Jacob. So here's Jacob, right? He's kind of a homebody. He's at least stereotypically not a man's man. He's more of a mama's boy. And here's the thing though, 
it's known that he's not his dad's favorite. His dad has a favorite, and it's Esau. It's not Jacob. How would you feel? Can you relate to that? Like we talked about earlier, having parents who have favorites. Or maybe you haven't fit into the stereotypes. And so maybe you've never been able to kind of feel comfortable in your own skin. Maybe some of you have been wounded by a parent, by their favoritism, or by their hurtful comparison. And if so, I think you can see yourself in Jacob's story. I think his story can be really helpful for you. And what we're going to see, though, is that wound, that early wound that Jacob carried, sent him into a life of grasping. A life of always grasping to be good enough. Let's, let's see where that leads him. So we go to Jacob's early adult years. He keeps on grasping. Uh, in chapter 25, we see this, this little story. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country, famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That is why he is also called Edom, which means red. So anyway, all goes together. Edom, red, Esau, red. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is the birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank, and then he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. So let's just think about that story for a second. So Jacob's cooking, right? Esau comes in from a hunting trip. He's famished. He feels like he's about to die. He's probably not really about to die, but he's so hungry. And he sees this stew that Jacob's making. He's like, I've got to have some of that stew. And Jacob sees the opportunity. He says, hey, this is my chance to trick my brother, to steal something very valuable away from him. And he does. He's able to steal it away from him. And what, again, what's the deal with the birthright? So the birthright, real quick, basically when you had, when they had sons, the first son would get an extra share of the birthright. So I'll put it this way. They had two sons, so they would divide. They would always take the number of sons, add one, and then divide it. So, so you have two sons, Jacob and Esau. Then you, you add one, which gives you three. You divide the whole inheritance into thirds. The first son gets two of those thirds. The second son or any other sons gets one, okay? So... So basically what Esau did was trade away his extra uh, share of the inheritance, which is a huge, huge deal. So Jacob is becoming a deceiver. He's becoming a liar. He's becoming a manipulator in order to grasp onto this feeling of good enough, right? So fast forward a few years later. Isaac is nearing death, his dad. His eyes are getting bad. He can't see. He wants to make sure he gets his affairs in order before he dies. So he asks Esau to hunt some game. Uh, go kill something and bring in my favorite meat, my favorite barbecue kind of thing. And then, and then he'll give Esau what he calls the blessing. So what's the blessing? The blessing is like the dying last words of a father to his son. Kind of the last wishes, the last blessing. Really, really important in that culture. And then they're going to celebrate together by eating this food that, that Esau has hunted and cooked. So anyway, what happens though is Rebecca gets wind of it, the mom, and she devises this plan to help Jacob instead deceive his dad and get the blessing. Okay, so they devise this plan. They're gonna they're gonna cook it just the way, cook the food just the way that um, Isaac likes it. Jacob's gonna bring it in. There's only one problem. What if Isaac reaches out and touches Jacob in this process, and he feels the skin and he realizes he doesn't have the hairiness issue, right? That Esau does. What what will happen then? So uh, Rebecca gets creative. 
they actually put a put some hair like a like a fur on his arms and on his neck so that if Isaac reaches out and touch him he'll seem like Jacob and so they it works they actually are able to deceive him and so we pick up in verse 27 so he went to him this is Isaac going to Jacob and he kissed him when Isaac caught the smell of his clothes he blessed him he thought it was Esau and he gave him this long blessing. We won't read it for time's sake, but then we'll skip down to verse 30, um, which says, after Isaac finished blessing him and Jacob had scarcely left his father's presence, his brother Esau came in from hunting. So Isaac's just given the blessing to the wrong son. Jacob leaves. Esau comes in. Esau's distraught. He's like, dad, is there any blessing left for me? And, and the way it works in that culture, no. Once the blessing is given, it can't be taken back. So Esau has lost his blessing from his dad. Jacob has stolen it away from him. And so what do we see? He's living up to his name, a life of increasing deception, lying, and manipulation. And here's where I think we see our life in that, okay? When we start grasping for good enough, inevitably it leads us to do things we regret. Have you seen that in your own life? I know I've seen that in mine. Inevitably it leads you to justify doing things that you know aren't right. Maybe it's lying to your parents or others to make your accomplishments look better than they are or sound better, more impressive. Maybe it's fudging on your resume to get a job or get a position. Maybe it's just living a double life, you know, to try to get approval from a kind of a Christian crowd over here and an old, you know, crowd of old friends over here. And, but the lies and the deceit, it's all wound up and it's starting to come apart. I mean, we've all, we've all done that. We've all been there and done that. But the point is, grasping for good enough always leads us to do things we regret. What happens next? Again, we're not going to read uh, all the story. I'm trying to give you highlights. But Jacob hears that Esau wants to kill him. And so he flees from his home in Beersheba and goes all the way to Haran, I don't know how to pronounce it, to his uncle Laban's house. So if you can see the map at all, so way down by the, uh, the small little lake down here, he goes from there all the way up to the top of that red line. That's about 550 miles. Back then you could take about 15 miles a day by foot. So that's about a 30, what, 30, uh, 36 day journey by foot. So long way. So he's now grasping for good enough has led him into a life of fear a life of running scared. He's hiding from others. He can't have peace. He can't be honest because he's too afraid. And so maybe that's where some of us are. Maybe some of us are fleeing, sort of running scared from our own life, sort of catching up with us in some way. But here's what happens. On his way to Haran, God intervenes in Jacob's life at this little town called Bethel. He reaches out to Jacob through a dream. Jacob falls asleep. He has a dream. God basically tells him who he is, gives him promises and says he's going to be the one to inherit the blessing of Abraham and Isaac, makes those promises to him, reaches out to him, throws him a lifeline, if you will. And so if Jacob had trusted God, he probably wouldn't have left Bethel. He probably would have gone back home trusting God. But what will he do? Here's what happens. Next verses, uh, chapter 28, 20 through 21. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will watch over me on this journey, I, will, I am taking and will give me food to eat and clothes to wear 
so that I will return safely to my father's household. Then the Lord will be my God. What's he doing? He's doing what a lot of us have done, right? He's making a bargain with God. God, if you do this, if you give me this, then I'll follow you. Then I'll worship you. So he kind of puts God off. He wasn't ready to give up the grasping just yet. He wasn't ready to trust God. So here's a question for you. This is where we can see our own life and the life of Jacob. How has God thrown you a lifeline in your life? How has God reached out to you? Maybe when something really bad was happening. In Jacob's life, it was because Esau was chasing him, going to kill him. But maybe in your life, how has God thrown you a lifeline? How has he reached out to you? You know, for some of you, it's you have a parent, just great parents or, or, or a godly parent. Maybe you have grandparents. Maybe it's um, just being a part of a good church. Maybe it's a, a mentor, a small group leader. Maybe it was a camp you went to. But in some way, I bet that God has tried to show himself to you in your life. How, how did he do that in your life? And here's the next question, and maybe the more important one is, how did you respond to that? Because I bet some of us are like Jacob. I bet some of us kind of put God off. I bet some of us kind of made a bargain with God. Okay, God, I hear you, but not now. I'm going to put you off for a little while. Or if you'll give me such and such, then I'll follow you. If you give me this girlfriend, if you give me, get me into this college, if you get, get me out of this situation I'm in, if you get me out of this trouble, then I'll follow you. So Jacob, he kept running, stayed in Haran for 20 years. He worked for his uncle. He married not one, but two of his uncle's daughters, which is strange, his cousins. Uh, it actually ended up being very hurtful to one of his wives. So here we go. Now we get to the climactic episode of his life. 20 years later, Jacob decides to come back home. But here's the thing. He doesn't know how Esau is going to react. What's going to happen when Esau sees him? So he sends messengers ahead to try to win Esau, to lots of gifts and things like that to try to win his favor. But here he is. He comes back down. He's very close to home. He's, on the, he's by a river, and Esau is coming up. He knows he's going to see him tomorrow. And so here's what happens. He's deathly afraid, though, that Esau will kill him. And so the night before he meets Esau, he's desperate. He's finally kind of reached the bottom of his life. He realizes he'll never be good enough. He'll never have what he's looking for. He'll never be saved unless it's up to God. So here's what he does. He sends his family in the caravan ahead across the river because he knows he's got to get alone and seek God. Here's what happens. Verse 23. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. He got alone on purpose. Why? He was finally desperate. And here's what happened. Very strange. A man wrestled with him till daybreak. Like, wait a second. Where did this man come from? He was alone. It just said he was alone. So this very strange, mysterious person shows up, wrestles him. We don't know who is this. Why are they wrestling? Next verses. When the man saw that he could not overpower him. In other words, when this, this mysterious man saw he couldn't overpower Jacob, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. So the man sees that Jacob is resistant, right? He can't overcome him. Uh, and so he weakens him. He injures his hip, making it harder for Jacob to win, to stay in this struggle. Next verses. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans and have overcome. Wait, struggle with who? With God. Right now we see it. So this man, this mysterious man who wrestled with him is actually in some way a physical manifestation of God. And this man tells Jacob to let him go, but Jacob refuses. He won't let him go. He says, I won't let you go until you bless me. He's desperate. Why? Because he knows that he'll never grasp onto good enough until he grasps onto God. He's gotten to that point in his life where he believes and realizes he'll never grasp onto good enough until he grasps onto God. He's grasped onto so many things, but they haven't worked. Now he finally grasps onto God and he won't let go. He knows that God is his only hope to save him from his brother who he's going to meet the next morning and he thinks is going to kill him for sure and wipe out his family. But something else is happening here. He's not just desperate to be saved. Catch this. The man asked Jacob his name. And what's significant about that? Well, in that day and age, giving your name to someone was kind of like giving them a little bit of power over you, giving you a little bit of authority over you. So Jacob is starting to soften to God. Jacob's starting to say, God, I think you better be in control of my life from now on. I think I better make you my leader and my Lord. But then even more, it goes a step further because the man or God, we find out, actually changes Jacob's name to Israel, which means struggles with God. Why the name change important? Well, because even more so than the thing we just said, if you give someone else a name, that means you are for sure in authority over them. It's like a king comes in, conquers a land, puts a vassal uh, king kind of in place to rule it for him and changes the name of the country, maybe changes the name of the king to represent him and his kingdom, right? So even more so now, Jacob has decided to submit his life to God. He's decided to make God the Lord and leader of his life. So here's the question though. Would he find what he's been looking for? Would somehow this blessing from God be the answer to this lifelong grasping for good enough? And here's the answer is yes. The name he gets, this new name changes his life. Because see, Jacob went from Jacob, the liar, the deceiver, the manipulator, the outcast to Israel, the heir of God the heir of the covenant promises, the honored one by God, the one accepted by God. Let's go on in the story. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. So Jacob finally finds the good enough. He finally gets it, the blessing he's always been grasping for. He met God face to face, and his life was changed. And for the rest of his life, Jacob would walk with this limp. Why? Because I think God always wanted him to remember this episode. He always wanted him to remember that he needed God and that God changed his life. So he would always limp after that. So I just want to make sure we all get a few really important things out of this story, okay? So just a few key takeaways out of this. Number one, you have to be desperate before you'll grasp onto God. You have to be desperate. In other words, in some way, I don't know what this is going to look like in your life. 
In some way, you have to hit rock bottom. You have to run out of options. You have to be let down by all the other things you're going to grasp onto before you're going to grasp onto God. You have to get to that point where you believe like Jacob that you'll never grasp onto good enough unless you grasp onto God. Number two, for you to really encounter God, God is going to wound you out of love. For you to really encounter God in your life, in some way, God is going to wound you. And again, I don't know what that's going to look like. We saw what it looked like for Jacob. Sometimes it's a wound like we have an emotional wound or, or a relational wound from our past, like we were talking about, that, that God gives us. Sometimes it's a physical wound, a disease, maybe a sickness, something like that, something that he allows us to be in our life. Sometimes it's just the spiritual wound of the, of the humbling that comes into our life when we realize how much we need God, when we see our sin for really what it is, when we see where it's led us, when we see the emptiness of it, when we see the hurt it's brought into our lives and others' lives, there's just this humbling, this wounding that comes from God because he loves us, because he's seeking us out and trying to show us how much we need him. So, but here's a question for you. Have you misinterpreted God's wounds in your life? So what I mean by that is what's our natural interpretation of the wounds? Our natural interpretation is that, yeah, God has shafted me. Why am I going through this? This is a sign that, you know, I'm not good enough and, and God doesn't love me, whatever it is. But in other words, that we use that as an excuse. We drive ourselves away from God. But what this is telling us is if, if this is right, then the right interpretation is that God has wounded us because he loves us. God has wounded you because he's trying to get your attention. He's trying to draw you to himself. He wants you to know that, he, that you need him. Maybe even all the ways you don't feel good enough, or maybe in some way his way of creating in you a desperate desire to finally grasp onto him. So first, you have to be desperate. Two, he's going to wound you. Three, when you grasp onto God, he gives you grace. Okay, this is the... This is the amazing thing. Think about it. Jacob didn't do anything to deserve this. He didn't do anything to earn from God, right? His life was a mess. He didn't clean up his crap first. He didn't get his life together before God blessed him. No, he just wouldn't let go. He got desperate and he would not let God go. And God gave him grace. God gave him a new name, a new identity that changed his life. So how does God do this? You know, Jacob didn't even know. How is it exactly going to happen? How can God have grace like this? But we see a much fuller picture because what we see in the New Testament is that Jesus is actually the true and better Jacob. He's the true and better Jacob that went to the cross and struggled with God on behalf of his people to win the blessing for us, the blessing that we could never deserve. He won it for us. That's what Jesus did. And so it's that grace that finally ends the endless grasping after things, that finally gives rest to the soul, that finally says, in Christ, you are good enough. In Christ, you are good enough. So no matter how messy your life is, no matter what you've done, no matter how much you've looked to other things, grasping on other things that have failed you, God wants you to know that he wants to have grace on you. He wants to accept you. He wants to receive you. He did it for Jacob, and he wants to do that in your life too. And what do you have to do? All you have to do is grasp onto God. Just don't let go, okay? Grasp onto him 
and don't let go. Grasp onto him like he's your only hope. So just three practical steps before we leave. And then we're going to close in prayer. But number one, I would say this. If somehow this story has gotten your attention tonight, if you can see somehow your life in the life of Jacob, I would say this. I'd say get alone with God. Like maybe tonight, maybe tomorrow, but go somewhere and get alone with God and do what Jacob did. Just don't let go of God until he blesses you. If you don't know him and you haven't experienced him face to face, that encounter with God that saves and changes your life, don't let go of him until he gives you that, okay? And what I mean by that is it could be for the first time, but for all of us, we all need to keep going back to God and remembering and asking God, would you please drill down into me that new identity you've given me such that it lets me let go of the things I'm grasping onto? Would you drill down into me that new identity that satisfies the soul, that stops the grasping, that is the full encounter with God? So that's number one, get alone with God and don't let go. Number two, talk to others. So when you seek God like that, one of two things is gonna happen. Either you're gonna seek him and you're gonna get a sense that yes, he has answered my prayer. I am forgiven. I am receiving the blessing. I feel freed up from the grasping and the sin that used to mark my life. Well, you wanna tell someone about that, right? So tell someone, talk to someone, talk to a small group leader, a pastor, a staff. Or the other thing might happen is, You try to seek him. You get alone and try to seek him. You ask him for the blessing of his grace and you're not sure. You kind of get silenced. You're not sure how to handle that. And in that case too, you need to talk to someone to process that. Okay, what's going on in my life? What's going on in my relationship with God? Okay. Because of course he's not going to answer verbally, but it's a matter of trusting and understanding his grace and what he's doing in your life. But you're going to need help with that. So number two, talk to others. Number three, specifically take the thing that you've been grasping onto, whatever that is, and take that thing and ask God for grace to let go of it and instead grasp onto how your new identity answers that thirst, answers that grasping in your heart, okay? And that's what we're gonna do for the next few minutes. So uh, the music team's gonna come back up. And what we're gonna do is we're gonna have a prayer time. And we're gonna use this prayer time just to give God the things we've been grasping onto, and we're going to ask him for grace to help us grasp onto him and not let go. And specifically, we're going to ask him for grace to realize how our new identity in Christ sets us free from the things we've been grasping. I'll just say this. Aren't you tired of the endless grasping? Aren't you tired of that? You'll never grasp onto good enough until you grasp onto God. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We see our lives in the story of Jacob. We see the wounds of Jacob in the wounds of our life, the ways we don't feel good enough and the ways that Jacob never felt like he measured up. God, and we see how we have grasped onto so many things to try to have that sense of good enough, to try to feel okay about ourselves. We've seen the emptiness of that. We've seen how it never gives us what we want. God, and it leads to so much just hiding and deceiving and 
destruction in our relationships, hurt. Father, and we're so tired of that. We want to let go of those things and we want to grasp on to you, God. And so God, there's some of us in this room, we're just going to pray this together. God, we've grasped after our Father's approval, our Father's love. Somehow we didn't get it. Somehow we didn't get it in the way we felt like we needed to. But God, you say that you've given us your fatherly love and approval. You love us and delight in us and will never reject us. God, we've grasped onto respect from others. We've tried that, but God, you say that you've given us respect and honor because we are your sons and daughters. We are valued and honored in your eyes, given a great kingdom, given honor of bearing your name and spreading your kingdom. God, we've, we've grasped onto acceptance. We haven't felt accepted, but you say that you accept us in the beloved. You accept us in Christ. You say of us what you said of Jesus at his own baptism. This is my son or daughter who I love and whom I am well pleased. We've grasped onto control, trying to make our lives manageable and controllable, but God, we can't. God, you say that you are our provider. You say that you are our sovereign leader and controller of our life, the guider of our life. Help us to rest in that. God, whatever it is right now that we're grasping onto, we give those things to you right now. Oh God, give us grace. Lord, we grasp onto you. We don't want to let go, Lord. We know that you're the only source of blessing, the only source of being good enough. So we grasp onto you and ask you to bless us with your grace. Give us a deeper understanding of your grace and your love that sets us free to follow you, to worship you. Yes, we're going to walk with a limp the rest of our life, God, but help us to accept that. Help us to walk with you faithfully because you have been a faithful one. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.